Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries, of curiosities, of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Dang it, I I only caught the tail end of your vocal warm-up for this episode. I need to be quicker on the mic switch. Oh, I'm sure there will be more noises. The the dogs (laughs) are having a hard time settling down this evening, so there's been a lot of snortling and uh, toenail clicking. We're recording this on Memorial Day, and God knows when you're listening to it, but this is the first time we've done two episodes in a week, and we're going to continue doing that. This is our first, second episode. Very exciting. Lots of work. But You're not, you're not thrilled about, about the work part? No, it's good. I'm, I enjoy it. It's good. You seem a tad distracted. You, did you, you just got off the phone with your mom. What's yeah, going on there? That's the thing. I, you know, it's always an adventure. Um, she was very upset because, well, okay, so, you know, long weekend, we did not plan well, and we ran out of dog food. Right. And the boys eat prescription food, so we have to get it from the vet, and the vet's not open, of course, today. So I was cooking them some food. I went to the store, and I bought them some stuff so I could make them some food. And my mom was very upset to discover that I was cooking them chicken. Why was she upset with that? (laughs) Well, because, you know, I mean, we're vegetarians. Sure. And, uh, and I don't... Uh, uh, remember last year when I stayed with her because she had her knee replaced there, that she had that robot knee put in? Right. Uh, and she, she obviously couldn't cook and move around the kitchen the first couple of days, so uh, she, I was cooking for her, but I wouldn't cook her chicken. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of a daughter are you? <laughs> I mean, no, I made her food. I made what? her meals, like grilled cheese sandwiches and stuff. I just, I didn't want to cook meat for her, uh-huh. and I don't think that's unreasonable. But the boys, I mean, they they need they they need they they needed food for them. I had to make the you, food for them. You love the dog more than you do your mom. That's not true. That's what you're saying. You're saying I love our dogs more than I love my mother. I don't care if she starves. 
I'm just going to give her a portion of watered-down gruel served in a rusty pie plate that I'm going to slide under the door like they used to do in Dickensian workhouses. Listen, I don't know what your goal is here, uh, but you know that that's not far from where she actually feels. <laughs> so let's not make it worse. Okay, it's not true. <laughs> Theboxofoddities.com is our website. You can get a hold of us on curator at theboxofoddities.com. And uh, we got a, an email from Tyler Thorin. Where's he from? Wyoming. And he was commenting on the uh, most recent episode about the Denver International Airport mm-hmm. and all the freaky things there. I guess he's been there quite a bit. And he said, uh, most, if not all major U.S. airports have chain link security fences with razor wire, barbed wire on top, similar to a prison fence. All of them except DIA have a razor wire slash barbed wire facing outward away from the airport so to keep someone for or something from getting inside. The security fence around DIA is facing inwards so as to keep someone or something from getting out. Ooh. Interesting Tyler Thorne of Wyoming. Yeah, yeah. I also got some feedback from our friend from Albuquerque, Stephanie. Uh, who said that she has spent a significant amount of time in the Denver airport and layovers and such. And uh, it's bizarre because the there's a second floor there that seems to be pretty much unused. So she it, you know, goes up there and hangs out, has a little nappy, uh, uses the largely unoccupied ladies' rooms because uh, there are no, uh, quote, weird airport men there. <laughs> well, that's because they're all hiding underground in those <laughs> Nazi bunkers. <laughs> Allegedly. DIA. So you go first this week. What you got, lady cakes? Oh, oh, I go first. Mm-hmm. Madame Monnier was a widow who lived in an upper-class Parisian estate with her lawyer son, Marcel, and daughter, Blanche. In 1876... When she was 25, Blanche, a young, beautiful socialite, fell in love with an older lawyer who lived nearby. The lawyer was not as successful as Madame Monnier would have liked for her daughter. The Monniers were upper class, high society types. What's that A word that I can't think of? Aristocracy. There we go. All I could think of was cats. Air hammer. Um, at one point, Madame Monnier had won an award for the Committee of Good Works for her generous contributions to the city. The lawyer, though, was older and poor, and uh, she disapproved of this this match, this love match. And, but Blanche wanted to marry him. And then Blanche disappeared. There's Blanche. Mm-hmm. There's her mom, mm-hmm. which I don't know her mom's name other than Madame. Okay. There's no, there's no mom name. Uh, of course, this is, you know, 1870s. So a lot of that stuff, you know, she was the wife of so-and-so. You know how that goes. That was a problem when we were doing our ancestry, too, is that when you get further back, it's all like, oh, it's Tom Schubenheimen. And then... Uh, Lady Schubenheimen. It's right. like, did from, she not have a name? From the Passaic, New Jersey Schubenheimens. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, and then Marcel. So time went by. Madame Monnier and Marcel mourned Blanche and moved on with their lives. Years went by, and there was no word on what happened to Blanche. 24 years pass. It's now 1901. 
the Attorney General of Paris receives a strange anonymous note. Monsieur Attorney General, I have the honor to inform you of an exceptionally serious occurrence. I speak of a spinster who is locked up in Madame Monnier's house, half-starved and living on a putrid litter for the past 25 years. In a word, in her own filth. Ooh. Wait, so her mother locked her up to keep her from marrying this guy? We're getting there. Okay. All right. So, of course, the police were shocked by this accusation. Uh, She was a woman of wealth, high breeding, blah, blah, blah. Officers were, though, sent to inspect the house. And although they were denied at first entrance, they forced open the door and got inside. They searched the home and discovered a door upstairs with a padlock on it. They got to the door, opened it up, and discovered a dark, tiny, foul-smelling room. Piles of feces and dried vomit blanketed the floor. The remnants of food scraps, rodent droppings surrounded a putrid straw mattress on which lay a now nearly 50-year-old Blanche. Oh my God, so she was so determined that her daughter not marry this guy that she made her stay in poop for 25 years? Some, I mean, you can phrase it that way. It's... I just did. I right, <laughs> yeah. I I think obviously there's there's more going on, but we'll get to that. Police took her to the hospital because at this point they didn't know what was going on. They didn't know this was Blanche. Wow. They just saw this woman. They thought, okay, we got to get her some help. Brought her to the hospital, and it was when they got to the hospital that they figured out. This is the missing girl. It, now, was, was she speaking? Was she uh, cognizant of who she was, where she was, or was she just a total, you know? I was getting different reports about that. Right. There's Overall, there wasn't a lot of cognizance coming from her. There was an article in the New York Times published in June of 1901 that reads this, and it's so it's so upsetting. Time passed, and Blanche was no longer young. The attorney she loved so died in 1885. During all that time, the girl was confined to a lonely room, fed with scraps from her mother's table when she received any food at all. Her only companions were the rats that gathered to eat the hard crusts she threw upon the floor. Not a ray of light penetrated her dungeon, and what she suffered can only be surmised. Now... How long was she in there after her fiancé died? Fifteen years. She didn't let her out after the guy died. She just left her in there. Yeah. The idea was that she was told that when she agreed she would not marry this man, she would be let out. And Blanche just kept saying, no, I, I will have him. And her mom just became more and more incensed if you will. Wow. And then, so when he kicked it, uh, the I mean, I'm sure after all that time, you can't go, okay, then out of your room you go. Doot, doot, doot. It, yeah. I'm going to go out on a limb here, but mm-hmm. that's some bad parenting. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think that it's a mistake, as, as we so often do, to say this girl was treated this way because she did this. This woman, the mother, Madame, was obviously a nut job. 
And that's the thing is so often we hear, um, well, this girl rejected this boy and so he shot her. And it's like, no, no, Whoa. this boy is a GD nut job and he shot a woman who stood up for herself. You know, that's just so often we turn it around gotcha. and we create a situation where the victim created the situation. Right. It's victim blaming. And that's not it's not the way that it that goes. So um, this this girl, Blanche, once very healthy, now weighed a mere 55 pounds. And it was reported that after they got her set up in her hospital room, she was breathing clean air, looking at the light streaming through the window, which reportedly she had not seen in 24 years. And she said, how lovely it is. Wow. So, so what happened? Okay. The next day, her mother was arrested. Um, She did eventually confess to her crimes. An outraged crowd gathered outside her cell as people found out, holy whoa, that's where Blanche has been this whole time. And of course, people had offered their condolences. They had felt the loss of this child with this family. And of course, you know, so they're pissed. And their admonishment triggered a heart attack. Madame Monnier had a heart attack in jail, and she died in the infirmary 15 days later. That's poetic. Blanche's brother, Marcel, was first sentenced to 15 months in prison, but he was later released as he never physically restricted his sister's movement. So he wasn't in charge of the household. He didn't lock her up. He was aware of what was going on. But whoever was in charge there, you know, said that he wasn't the one who did it, even though he knew of everything that was going on. Wow. Which got me to thinking about um, duty to rescue, which I had to look up because originally I thought it was called the Good Samaritan Law. And I guess Good Samaritan Law and duty to rescue are two separate things. And this kind of blew my mind. So generally, a person cannot be held liable for doing nothing while another person is in peril. Which seems completely backwards to me. I feel like if you know that someone's in danger, not doing something is assisting. Yes, exactly. So a duty to rescue may arise where a person creates a hazardous situation where more people may become injured and parents have a duty to rescue their minor children. There are other situations like in certain states, a spouse has a duty to rescue their spouse. And in the United States, as of 2009, 10 states had laws on the books requiring that people at least notify law enforcement and or seek aid for strangers under peril. And that's where the Good Samaritan law comes in. If a person is trying to assist in rescuing someone and succeeds, that person can't then sue them for something that happened during the course of their rescue. Gotcha. Gotcha. But you remember a little while ago, uh, maybe a year or two ago, there were those kids in Florida who watched and laughed as a man drowned. Yes. You remember that? I do. There's no reason that that should be legal. Like, that, that makes me irate to the point where there's, if you see that someone's in danger... To to the point where they're going to die, to not act, to me, is just as bad as taking part in their death. And by acting, you know, like in this case, maybe not jumping into the riptide and trying to save this guy, Mm -hmm. but notify somebody, let somebody know, don't just uh, point and laugh. Right. 
Good God. So how long did Blanche live? Did did it say how long she lived after she was rescued? Yes. Um, she did. Uh, she was unable to live outside on her own after this, you know, horrendous event, obviously. So she was sent to a assisted living facility, which I think they called it a sanitarium at that time, and then died in 1913. So it was 12 years later. Hmm. And um, her brother, though he didn't, you know, see any justice in in my mind, um, it it's thought by many that he was the one who wrote the letter to the attorney general. Um, so he did act. Maybe. A, maybe. Maybe a little. Um, eventually. Yeah. Well, you think Some. he was scared of his mother? It's possible. It sounds like she was a GD nutjob. And maybe, maybe she he was afraid she was going to write him out of the will or something like that. That's very possible. Or yeah. lock him up in a room. Yeah, that's true, too. You yeah. don't know. So anyway, that's the story of Blanche Monnier <laughs> and her imprisonment by her mother for love. 25 years. 24 years. 24 years living in uh, a small little dungeon-like room. With According to one report, smaller than the a general cubicle size, like like ti- like enough for her to lay down, like and, a closet, like a closet. Oh my god! Tiny. No, no ventilation. No. No windows. No. Just lying in two plus decades worth of poop and vomit. Rodent wow. droppings. Wow. Rotting food. Rotting mattress. Your did, skin's rotting. How did she survive that? How? It, that's a who knows. Yeah, I feel bad now complaining about uh, the laundry piling up on the bed. This woman lived in poop for two and a half decades almost. Oh, here's a picture, and that's when she was found. Oh my god. That's horrible. She's not wearing clothes. That's the way that her body looks. Oh, that poor woman. It's horrendous. 50 years old, 55 pounds. Why didn't the dogs interrupt us before you showed me that picture? I'm so sorry. Oh, my God. Wow. Wow. I'm never complaining ever about anything ever again. Yeah, sorry about that. And now, that thing in the middle. Here's something nice. I made you something. You made me something? Yeah. What'd you make me? Yeah, it's for the thing in the middle. You, you made a you made a thing for the thing in the middle. Yes, but it's for you because you, you know how you're like a Civil War guy. I love the Civil War. I'm a history buff. Yes, it's true. Especially haunted battlefields. Every time uh, Civil War categories come up in Jeopardy, I know you're going to smash my face <laughs> like with a shovel, mm-hmm. and I'm going to feel real bad about myself. Sure. And I love that about you. Thank you. And uh, it's Memorial Day, and so and I, we had talked about doing something different for the thing in the middle. Um, for the second episode. So I wanted to make you a thing that goes in the middle for for you. All right, fire it up. General John A. Logan, Civil War General, U.S. Senator, and founder of Memorial Day, was born... On February 9th, 1826, in Jackson County, Illinois. When war broke out against the Confederacy in 1861, Logan enlisted immediately. He was serving with the Michigan Regiment at the Battle of the First Bull Run on July 21st. 
And when the Civil War ended, James A. Logan became instrumental in founding a veterans network. He called it the Grand Army of the Republic. That was in 1866. And when Logan became their second elected national commander, he issued General Order Number 11. That was on May 5th, 1868. It called for a national decoration day on May 30th to honor fallen veterans with flowers and other decorum. Quote, let pleasant paths invite the coming and going of reverent visitors and found mourners. Let no vandalism of avarice, of neglect, no ravages of time testify to the present or to the coming generations that we have forgotten as a people the cost of free and undivided republic." Logan's decree was the first to establish Memorial Day as a day of remembrance occurring at the end of May. In the Illinois State Song, only three people are mentioned by name. Two are Presidents Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant. The third might be lesser known, yet arguably as important to our national history. General John A. Logan. Still, with Logan's impressive legacy, which boasts statues, museums, and schools, his greatest achievement can be said to lie at the adorned headstone of each and every soldier who's remembered on Memorial Day for their selfless sacrifice. That's how we do things downtown. The Box of Oddities with Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. Wow, that was almost like a Ken Burns documentary. That was that was well done. Was that our pal Lindsay? You know it is. Lindsay does a great Garrison Keillor voice, doesn't he? He's wonderful. Yeah, if you want to find out more about Lindsay, uh, thatvlguy.com. Lindsay's a great guy. And it's an amazing website name. He claims to record all of his voiceovers um, in a tree full of wee Saxon elves. Says right on his right on his website, it says that. I don't understand that at all, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's um it's your turn. You gonna you gonna have a story for me? I do have a story for you. It's so weird you did that Civil War thing in the middle for me because guess what my topic's about? The Civil War. <laughs> um, but kind of a weird until recently unexplained phenomenon that haunted generations. After the Battle of Shiloh. Intrigue. Apparently, after the Battle of Shiloh, some of the wounded soldiers started glowing blue. What? Yeah. And then the ones that did glow blue recovered at a much faster and more successful rate than people who had been wounded and did not glow blue. They call it Angel's Glow. And apparently there have been uh, firsthand accounts, guys that were survivors, the Battle of Shiloh, that experienced it, that said that they sensed a presence that was wandering around the field and they called them angels. But there was no evidence of that other than the fact that some of their wounds glowed blue and then they healed and others didn't and they did not heal as successfully. The Battle of Shiloh produced more than 23 thousand casualties over a two-day period oh my god and that was the bloodiest battle to date until a year later when gettysburg 
took place and then you know it eclipsed right. what what happened at Shiloh um, on April 6th 1862 Confederate soldiers according to Wikipedia surprised Union soldiers they were camped out along the Tennessee River and the idea was the Confederacy wanted to push the Union troops back before their reinforcements came mm-hmm. the South came very close to winning this uh, decisive fight they weren't too far from uh, from actually uh, uh, achieving victory, even though they were outnumbered, like 60,000 to 40,000. Mm-hmm. But then the um, General Buell's uh, Army of the Ohio showed up. I have a question. Yeah. And I'm sorry. You know that I'm like super ignorant when it comes to uh, Civil War stuff uh, because I have you. And so I have all the answers. I just need to ask first. Um, so wh- where, where? Where's the Battle of Shiloh taking place? Tennessee. Where did this ha- it was in Tennessee. Tennessee. Okay. And it was named the Battle of Shiloh because it took place in and around uh, Shiloh Church. Okay. It was the, the church was named Shiloh. Okay. It was, uh, what was it, Pittsburgh Landing. But imagine this, 23,000 casualties lying in a relatively small area next to a river. It was like a swamp mm. there. The medics at the time... There weren't enough of them, anywhere near enough to deal with 23,000 guys yeah. um, lying in the muck. And when they did, their their techniques and practices were, were you know bordering on barbaric. They didn't understand germs. They didn't understand antiseptics. Right. When they amputated, which they did a lot of, they, uh, they would do hundreds of them at a time. And the surgeon would saw the guy's leg off, throw it in a pile... They would move him away. The surgeon would take a deep breath. He would wipe off his uh, his surgical saw on his bloody apron, and they'd bring the next one in. And it went on and on and on and on and on. Yeah, and when we were at the Mutter Museum, there were some uh, medical instruments that they had used during that time, and the case for them was lined in, like, Velvet, velvet, velvet. Um, which I can't imagine hinders the growth of bacteria no. and no. germs. It's like putting putting them in a petri dish. Right. A high percentage of people that died in the Civil War died from either disease or infection after the wound had taken place. Some of the weapons were were relatively new mm-hmm. and incredibly barbaric, like uh, canister shells. That essentially was like a big coffee can full of ball bearings and they would shoot it out of a cannon at oncoming troops. And there are descriptions that I've read of that happening. The guys would fire the cannon into a line of oncoming soldiers and it's described as it turned the soldiers into pink mist. Oh my gosh. There was nothing left. That's in many cases. Very descriptive. So you've got 23,000 guys lying in a swamp, bleeding out germs. Some of them laid there for two days before oh, they got any help. Man. On the second night, the Battle of Shiloh, this strange phenomenon started taking place. People looking out over the, over the battlefield or people that were out there trying to administer aid to the fallen started noticing this strange bluish light glowing on the battlefield in many areas. And they went out to investigate And every time it was a wounded soldier and it was the wound that they had received that was glowing. So it was not just that it it appeared blue. It's that it was emanating a blue glow. It was glowing blue. Captain James Cuddy Dinwiddie 
was a Confederate military surgeon who inadvertently advanced treatment against microorganisms and infections. He witnessed the carnage at, at Battle of Shiloh and was greatly interested by uh, the increased survival of those wounded that exhibited, quote, angel's glow. He was convinced that uh, the, the soldiers that did not survive, that did not have the angel's glow, were subjected to uh, bad or foul air. So he started. what he started doing was boiling his instruments and the bed sheets and anything that would touch the soldiers with the idea of blocking any bad air. He didn't understand that he was killing the, the germs and right. doing it. But because of this, because of Angel's Glow, the search for antiseptic began. That's amazing. Well, throughout history, the story of the Angel's Glow has been passed down from generation to generation. Sure. Um, nobody understood what happened. They uh, assigned it to some sort of a, a supernatural event. Uh, they thought it was they were they were angels walking around and, mm. and, and you know healing people and uh, turning their their wounds blue sure. because as angels do all sure. the time they're sure. they're known for turning wounds blue and then of course those with the blue glowing wounds got better yeah. at a much more a much higher rate than the others so I mean at the time they put all those things together and they said well it's got to be the hand of God sure. or it's got to be angel intervention or Something like that. It wasn't until 2001 that it was discovered what was actually causing this. And it was discovered by a 17-year-old high school student in his science fair project. What? guy named Bill Martin. I like him already. He sounds trustworthy. Along with a friend, uh, Jonathan Curtis, uh, I guess Bill Martin's mother was a microbiologist and was doing work in uh, P-luminescence, things that glow in the dark specifically parasitic worms called parasitic worms. <laughs> uh, That's the best thing I've ever heard. <laughs> okay. I lost my place. Thread worms is what they're called. So Bill was interested in his mom's work with, uh, with P. luminescence and had the idea that perhaps this had something to do with Angel's Glow, which he had heard about on a trip to um, a battlefield. Cool. It's science fair time. Now, these worms, what they do is they puke out P. luminescence bacteria, and uh, they, they puke it out on insects, and it kills the insects, and then they feast on the insects. What's interesting about the bacteria, not only does it kill insects, but it tends to kill any competing bacteria that it might find. So the boys did a series of tests in a laboratory, and it turned out that that's exactly what happened. These guys were shot and were fighting in a swamp, mm. essentially. They were lying in the mud for a couple of days, and these worms, as gross as it sounds, got into their wounds. Mm, as they will. And they puked up this P. luminescence, which killed bacteria that could have caused more infection, and it also glowed blue. And it's interesting that it does glow blue. The reason it does glow blue is because the light attracts insects, which they feed on. Right. Oh, oh, smart little bugs. Yeah. So this supernatural experience mm -hmm. that, that people talked about for 150 years nearly mm -hmm. uh, turned out to be just uh, parasitic worms Yeah. getting into wounds on Civil War soldiers vomiting out uh, P-luminescence, making the thing glow, killing the bacteria, and helping them heal. 
That's, you know, uh, my science fair, I blended up bananas and strawberries and I put it on people's faces. And I was like, see how nice your skin feels? <laughs> mm. Did their skin feel nice? Yeah, I mean, it felt good. Yeah. 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 It was just, eh, it was easy and delicious, which is my way out of just about any task. <laughs> Oh, we got some yard work to do. How about instead we go shopping and get donuts? The good bacteria, of course, killed off all the infection causing the pathogens in the wounds. But uh, when men were taken to the hospital and warmed up, it killed off the uh, P. luminescence, mm. preventing it from causing additional infection. The fact that it was in a swamp or swampy wetland, mucky area that they were hurt and during the battle, the temperature was, was unseasonably cold. So those conditions combined to create the opportunity for this type of thing happening. And then when they got back to the hospital, it killed off the yep. P. luminescence, um, which the timing was important yeah. because if it had kept on P. luminescenting, it, that would have become a problem yes. too, right? Yeah, but the fact that they, they were warmed up, it killed them. So even though they didn't know what was happening, right. it all worked out in a weird... That is pretty magical. ...disgusting way. Yeah. Angels glow, everyone. Not to be confused with angel lust. Look that up. You're actually looking it up. I... Oh, it looks like a nice pudding cake. Oh, no. <laughs> That's different. Yeah, it's... That's, that's a, a lot different. That's it. Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there you have it. Angels glow. Simple, explainable. It My just goodness. took 150 years. I really enjoyed that. That was weird. Thank huh? you. And if you had started off by saying, I'm going to tell you a story about worms, mm. I would have been like, no. Yeah. I'm good. Yeah. Thanks, buddy. Mm. But instead, I really enjoyed that. Thank you. You're welcome. Oh, that was fun. Theboxofoddities.com. <gasps> Can we talk about our uh, T-shirts that we have available yeah, now? Yeah, we've got we've got some merch available on our website, yeah, uh, theboxofoddities.com. The and one of them has a freak flag on it. We have a freak flag line. It's so fun. We had, we had a lot of requests for freak flags. So there is a whole series of freak flag products as well as our logo and things like that. And jump on there and take a look. And if you do get any type of uh, Box of Oddities merch... Send us a picture of it, wherever you are, wearing it or drinking out of it or whatever you do with the merch that you buy. It is 100% necessary that you do that. It's part of your contract. Your purchasing contract is that you send us a picture of your products. That's not true, but uh, it would be do great it. if you did. It would be great if you did. Do it. So two episodes a week from now on. Thank you so much for the encouragement. We really do appreciate it. And uh, we look forward to seeing you the first of the week, Monday. Oh, my gosh. It's true. We just, I complain about the work, but I have so much fun doing this. And I'm so, I'm just, I'm real happy that we get to. It's fun. And that you want to hang out with us. And that you accept us. And you don't try to change us. I feel like you're going to launch into song. No. Song. All right. So, yep. yeah, yep. just a couple days now. Thank you for hanging out with us. Keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those I report to to beseech you for assistance. The box of oddities is free. We ask but one thing of you. 
to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast On Twitter at Box of Oddities And Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast Copyright 2018 All rights reserved My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.